I was recently asked why I put so much time and effort into speaking about New Zealand's national security. The same reason you should, I replied. For our children, nieces, nephews and their children. Hi, I'm Simon Ewing-Jarvie. It's our responsibility to live a better, safer, freer country than we inherited. And the only way that's going to happen is if ordinary citizens are involved in the national security conversation. That conversation should start with a comprehensive national security strategy being formulated, not the compartmentalised and under-resourced thinking which has been allowed to take hold, because that is indefensible New Zealand. Welcome back to episode 6 of Indefensible New Zealand, and today we're going to talk about some legal changes that I think would make sense in the national security environment. Let me start by saying I'm not a lawyer, something that I think will be of great comfort to New Zealand's legal profession. But I can see where changes are needed, and I can see where ideas that I'm talking about here need legislative support. First we've got a question from an audience member, and it's about the New Zealand Defence Force's COVID-19 support to called Operation Protect. And the question is about how long is the New Zealand Defence Force going to be involved? The answer is, I don't know, and neither do they. And uh, that is a, that's not a, a good situation for them to be in. Imagine going into a peacekeeping environment without an exit strategy or some definition in advance of what success will look like so you know when it's time to pull out. To the best of my knowledge, there is no exit strategy for the New Zealand Defence Force from Operation Protect other than when the government decides they want to do something else. Now, that's not acceptable. The Defence Force is a very scarce resource and whilst I'm, I'm absolutely in favour of them being involved as a first responder for COVID-19 in relation to helping to secure the borders, deploying medical staff and so forth. There is simply no case for having soldiers, sailors and airmen sitting around in in hotels, carrying bags and taking people out for um, exercise walks when we've got 27,000 licensed security guards in New Zealand. So come on government, step it up and Defence Force you need to be rattling that sabre a little bit more and making it clear to the politicians that you've done your thing now and you need to be thinning out, getting yourself back into the cycle of preparation for other emergencies. Now let's get back to the law. I've got uh, a few points that I want to raise today and the first one just harks back to the previous episode and the uh, Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Christchurch shootings recommendation that we have a national security agency and the chief executive becomes the primary or national security advisor to parliament. That clearly is going to require some some legislative support and the, the title that's the obvious one is already taken. In 2017 the New Zealand parliament passed the Intelligence and Security Act and this came from a March 2016 report by Sir Michael Cullen and Dame Patsy Reddy and it really was about the the GCSB and NZSIS, who had their own pieces of legislation, uh, four pieces in all, and how to bring together the New Zealand in, uh, intelligence community to work together better. What do we need in terms of legislation here? Well, we need legislation that will raise a national security and intelligence agency. We need that to create the chief executive as an officer of parliament. It should require a strategy for national security and a national threat assessment to be delivered and it should focus on New Zealand becoming self-reliant. Logically that would mean an end to defence white papers and a national security white paper being produced every five years as a minimum. Does it need a new act or do we simply need to amend the current 2017 legislation to look beyond the New Zealand intelligence community? Matter for another day. 
Uh, we'll see who we can get on to talk about that in another episode. Secondly, let's talk about natural disasters and New Zealand's defence. We, we've got the National Emergency Management Agency and it's outside DPMC. You spot the pattern here. I commend the Lifelines Council's 2020 annual report to you. Now, the Lifelines Council is responsible for looking at all the transport, energy, communications and water services that are fundamental to New Zealand's communities and, and the economy. Now, that's largely a natural hazard focus, um, but remember, if something is extremely important to New Zealand and is vulnerable to natural disasters, it's also going to be a prime target in a hot war. So there's going to be some crossover, I foresee, in the future between legislation enabling the National Security Agency and some of the work that the Lifelines Council is doing. At the moment, when a bill goes to Parliament, it's accompanied by a regulatory impact statement. Now, these have morphed over the years and are now becoming more, more and more comprehensive. They're lodged with the bill or before the first reading and they then made available with the explanatory notes and so on to both uh, members in the House and to select committees. I think a, a national security impact statement is an essential element of ensuring that people are thinking about the unintended consequences, particularly of making changes to law that might make perfectly good economic sense or social sense but actually are disastrous for our self-reliance as a country, our resilience, or our ability to protect ourselves from a, an external threat. It's a very, very simple mechanism for having people think about the future and about New Zealand's national security when each bill goes into the House. The next piece of legislation I want to talk about is the Armed Forces Covenant Bill, or Act, and I've deliberately used armed forces, not defence and not veterans, for the same reason I'm talking about national security. Those people who put themselves in harm's way to protect others are a unique type of citizen. And nowhere have we ever really documented, other than with a nudge and a wink, the social contract that exists between society and the people who protect it. Now, I've written about this on my blog. There are some people who would criticise this as saying, well, it sets up two classes of citizen. Well, that's true, but also irrelevant because there's already two classes of citizen. There's those who put themselves in danger to protect others, and then there's the rest. So the a Covenant Act would set out the social contract between the state and the individual, both during service and after service. Now, there's been various attempts around the world. The UK had one just fell short of passing it into legislation. Australians likewise have uh, come up with a non-legislative approach. I don't think it actually works and the reason for that is I've seen how employers have uh, worked their way around the issue of having reservists in their workforce. Some are hugely supportive and some are not. We need a legal framework on which service personnel leaving the force particularly can rely on. Veterans Affairs New Zealand is the entity that's uh, responsible for looking after our veterans. At the moment it's part of the New Zealand Defence Force. That is absolutely the wrong place for it. For a start, only some veterans are part of the Defence Force. The question really arises, who is a veteran? I think VANS would be better off as an independent Crown entity. It's a simple legislative change with their own appropriation. But we do need to wrestle with this, this legal construct of what is a veteran and we're going to spend several episodes throughout the uh, throughout the podcast talking about veterans and what support they do get and what they should get 
But at the core of it is what is a veteran. Now, there's been ministerial advisory groups talking about this in the last parliament particularly, and various other groups before that. The problem is it never goes anywhere. And while we've got a veteran's portfolio being held by a minister outside cabinet, it's not likely to go very far either. So we need a, a holistic approach. You can call it a kawanata if you want to, but it still doesn't change the fact that nothing much is being done other than people talking, reports being made, recommendations being made, and then no action being taken. So let's get on with this one. What goes with that is the need for a New Zealand Services Graves Commission, or War Graves Commission, if you like. The Commonwealth War Graves Commission doesn't cover very many service graves in New Zealand in terms of making sure that they're kept up a respectful state. Hence, we've had the rise of the New Zealand Remembrance Army, a group of many thousands of volunteers who are cleaning and restoring service graves around the country, of which there's about 350,000, and these volunteers have done about 40,000 of them already. So good work to those fellows. The really damning part of this is that no one really knows how many there are. No one really knows where they are because we have no central registry, no database, and no national responsibility for looking after them. It's apparently the family's responsibility. Well, when families disperse and the links are broken, so too is the is the remembrance that uh, these uh, servicemen who have passed on deserve. Let's talk about the Defence Act. The Defence Act actually has an amendment bill that has been languishing since uh, its inception in, in concept in the 2009-2010 Defence White Paper. There was a whole raft of changes that needed to be changed within particularly the Defence Act that have sat and set and there's been supplementary order papers and there's quite material things in there like changing the name of the territorial force to the reserve forces. Everyone's just talking about the reserve forces but in, in law the only reserve force that exists is the one uh, made up of people who have served in the full-time force and then got out. That might seem to be a relatively minor thing to most people but it's exceptionally important when it has knock-on effects into other legislation. There were other elements to that, like the um, changing of who holds a warrant in the service chiefs. And the warrant, remember, gives the, the person the right to go to the minister or the governor-general directly. Now, can you imagine a situation, for instance, in a normal another ministry where a deputy secretary had the right to go directly to the minister or the governor-general and bypass their boss? Because that's actually the situation that exists in the New Zealand Defence Force at the moment. And there's historical reasons for that. So let's let's get that bill, get it moving, and um, do those mechanical changes that were identified as being needed to be done over 10 years ago. There's one particularly important part of the Defence Act that needs to be used, and that's Section 50A, Situations of National Interest. Now, the reason why this piece, this clause exists is to enable the Volunteers Employment Protection Act, which is basically you can't be sacked if you go away as a reservist from your day job and go and serve the country here or overseas. To trigger the maximum protections of the Volunteers Employment Protection Act, Section 50A has to be, has to be used. It never has been. Unsurprisingly, there's been all sorts of troubles for volunteers and their jobs and their relationships with their employers. Now, it's a relatively simple thing. The mechanism already exists. All that the government has to do is declare under Section 50A of the Defence Act a situation of national interest. You'd think COVID-19 would be one, Operation Protect, wouldn't you? But it's not. And I believe that the legislation should be amended so that if a Section 50A declaration is, is made, then that should automatically make it qualifying operational service. At the moment, Every single 
theatre of operations, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor and so on, has to go to the Minister of Defence and they decide whether it's going to be qualifying operational service or not. That's clearly not a very um, sound way to do it. If the Section 50A announcement is made, it's automatically qualifying operational service. And, And what's different about putting your life in danger overseas and putting your life in danger here in New Zealand in a flood, famine, fire or so on event? People still get hurt, people still get sick. And I can tell you, there's a lot more danger fighting a bushfire than a lot of the situations that our uniformed personnel are in in some peacekeeping operations overseas. Now, qualifying operational service is an important legislative situation because, firstly, it triggers your veteran status, and that uh, triggers your support, both now and in the future. And it also triggers medallic recognition and I, like I can hear the eyebrows rolling out there. Yeah, $70 bit of cotton and, and, and a chunk of metal to hang on your chest. It's not much, but it's incredibly important to the people who actually go and put themselves in halfway because it's a public statement that they were there and they did that. It's been an ongoing source of problems as to what qualifies and what doesn't. It's never going to go away until we have a relatively simple triggering event. And I think that Section 50A of the Defence Act, situation of national interest, leading to qualifying operational service, leading to veteran status and leading to medallic recognition is a no-brainer. And just while we're on that, it's not really a matter of national security, but I have written an article on my blog about a national emergency medal for New Zealand. And um, Australians have one, other countries do have something similar. And I think it's long since uh, past that we should establish one here. And whether you're talking about the people who went onto White Island, uh, Fakari, or the people who went into the Christchurch CBD immediately after the earthquake and pulled bodies out of rubble and all that sort of thing, those people deserve some public statement and a medal is a very simple way of doing that and it's a way we could unite all our first responders defense police fire and so on one medal to bind them all i mentioned the volunteers employment protection act Uh, this was updated in the early 90s and it was out of date the first day it was enacted because it creates all sorts of complexities that shouldn't exist and a lot of these are connected to the use of section 50a so you've got some reservists who are completely protected under the Act, and some who aren't because there's no declaration. I've got a blog piece that talks about the Volunteers Employment Protection Act. You know, if there's some really simple things that we could do better. If a soldier comes back from serving, say, overseas, and finds that their employer has not protected their job, and they have to go and find money from somewhere to pay a lawyer to bring the case. Well, the Defence Force has got a legal service, and the Defence Force has actually created the situation, so why on earth wouldn't the Defence Legal Service provide the legal representation to enable these people to get a fair deal. You'd be better off to get pregnant than deploy as a reservist right at the moment. You've got greater protection under the law. Let's um, just introduce the idea of voluntary national service uh, because it will require legislative change, but it is a, a huge topic that we're going to have to explore in another episode. In a nutshell, voluntary national service means you get something from the state in return for you giving up one, two, three years service in one of the um, arms or services of state. So not necessarily the Defence Force, it could be police, fire, ambulance, and at the moment we've got some mo- some version of this with rural GP bonding schemes. In a nutshell, if you imagine, someone could say, look, I'm going to do three years in the army, and in return for that, their student loan will be remitted. So you could serve now, study later. You could study now and serve later. Or you could do a hybrid mix of the two. It's not unlike, uh, for instance, the American uh, ROTC schemes. I think this will 
be an essential element for being able to recruit the right sort of people for for now and the future. We actually had a scheme that worked perfectly well called the Malone Scheme. There's still a scheme called the Malone Scheme, but it's nothing like the original one that I designed in the um, mid to late 90s. We need to get back to some way of connecting society at large. How do particularly migrants come here and identify with our flag, our commander-in-chief, our nation's history and sense and all that. We don't even have a test to see if they actually know anything about our history, unlike many other countries. And I know that's being talked about. But voluntary national service is a real way that people could say, hmm, well, I'm new here. I'm a, I was, I came here when I was sort of four from, you know, the country. Um, but I'm going to give up some of my time and personal freedom to serve the country because not only do I think that's a good thing to do but there's some real tangible benefit for it in that I'm going to be able to go and study a trade or study at university fees fees free. That's a fairly fast overflight of the um, legal issues that I think we need to grapple with first. There's a lot in those and as I said I'm not a lawyer but I hope to get some people who are lawyers on to talk about some of these uh, in more detail in subsequent episodes. Thanks very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. That's it for this episode of Indefensible New Zealand. Thanks for joining the National Security Conversation. If you found this podcast episode useful, please subscribe and share it with your friends. For more information on New Zealand's national security or to send in questions for the series, please go to my website, unclass.com. Mm-hmm.